I just want to add that um, there's a lot of fear for when people want to talk about financial independence, about running out of money. But the thing that they should also worry about is running out of life. Because um, I have actually seen my coworker almost collapse from stress and die at his desk. So, you know, you could always be like, there's a million things that could go wrong. What if I, what if I need to budget for every single scenario that on, under the sun that could go wrong? Uh, or you could um, be more flexible. Think about how much you actually need to live com- comfortably. And you could even pick up a side hustle or two, and that significantly reduces the amount of money you, you need to retire. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 117. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Hey, doing great, man. How you doing? Good, good. I was going to tell you, when we talked about that Bill Gates documentary on Netflix a few weeks ago, we had a couple people write in, and I recently watched, I don't know if you've heard of this one, but I recently watched on the airplane home a movie uh, called Brian Banks. Have you heard about that? I have not. So that's another one to check out, throwing it out there as a, as a recommendation. It's about a guy who was wrongly imprisoned on a rape charge and worked with the California Innocence Project, which is just a not-for-profit law firm that kind of helped fight his cause and before all this happened, he was a five-star recruit to USC and was projected to you know, be a star in the NFL, and then this happened. And so it's kind of his journey hmm. into this false accusation, his journey out, but really a, a motivating, humbling, inspiring story where he was able to kind of take a bad thing and turn it into a positive. And, and anyway, just a, a great movie, so one I recommend. Well, that's awesome, man. I was going to tell you, too, I... You recommended movies, and and I'm I'm on the uh, recommendation train of a book I just finished called Atomic Habits, and uh, I know it's kind of a pro- probably pretty popular book right now. I've heard several people have started reading it. Yeah, uh, I actually kind of started a new thing with my wife where we basically read a book together a month, and so kind of January, I guess really December into January was was uh, Atomic Habits. And uh, I'm just going to read a couple different things uh, from that book, quotes from that book that I think are real pertinent to this time of year and, you know, our millionaires and listeners and stuff. The first one is, you don't rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. The purpose of setting goals is to win the game. The purpose of building systems and habits is to continue playing the game. Goals set a direction systems are best for making progress change the system when you solve problems at the results level you only fix them temporarily you need to solve them at the systems level anyway that's just a, a couple couple quotes from the book book's been phenomenal literally changed my personal way of thinking how i approach goal setting and systems and things in my life and highly recommend this by uh, james clear have you read that book yet clark I haven't. Have you read Power of Habit? I have, yeah. A while ago, though. Because that was kind of the other big one about habits, right? Yeah. What's the, do you remember, like, what's the big driver? What's the difference there on those two? I think James Clear's approach is much more systems oriented. You know, it kind of gets into, like, you know, traditionally a lot of people target a specific, like, goal, right? And they get to that goal or they don't get to that goal. It's like, I'm going to make X amount of dollars or I'm going to complete this task. And that's the, that's the goal, but you don't really develop in his eyes a system to then be able to hit those types of goals like 
forever and ever and ever. And that's really kind of the crux is to develop systems in your life, not remain solely focused on the goals that those gotcha. systems will then, you know, allow you to accomplish more and more and more and more and kind of expand your, you know, your personal growth pattern, I guess, if you want to call it that. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I have that one on the bookshelf. So I think that's on my list for this year. I have a goal to read 10 books this year. So well, 11, but uh, 10 main books. And then, yeah, that's one of them. So nice. Excited to read it. Good stuff. So speaking about books, if you're looking to read more and better yourself in 2020, or do you have an ever-growing list of books you want to read? Well, our new sponsor, Book Notes, can help. Book Notes knows that you don't have enough time, money, or patience to read all the books you've been wanting to. That's why they created short, easy to read or listen to summaries that help you learn, grow, and excel in your career and life. The summaries take an average of 5 to 15 minutes to consume and are a quick and easy way to get a base understanding of a book before you buy it. From nonfiction categories like finance, love, career, happiness, and health, to fiction and documentary, each summary highlights the key ideas of each title. Booknotes adds new content weekly, including top sellers and trending books from each category. Try Booknotes free for seven days. Click on the link in the show notes and download the app to get access to hundreds of summaries of best-selling and new released books. So we're thankful to Booknotes for, for sponsoring the show. When you support our sponsors, you support us and, and help this thing go. And so we appreciate that. If you're interested in coming on the show, feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. And on today's show, we have Christy and Bryce from Millennial Revolution. They talk about quitting their jobs and traveling the world and how they've been able to reach financial independence at the age of 31. On last week's show, if you haven't listened to that yet, go check it out. We had Shiloh. He's a counselor, and he has a remarkable story of getting out of debt and growing his wealth through real estate. He has about 45 single-family homes and about 45, I believe, other multifamily units and has a net worth of about $1.3 million. So thanks again for listening. We have a few sponsorship opening spots opening up here at the start of the new year or here into February. So if you're interested in sponsoring the show or know somebody who is, again, our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. But without any further delay, let's get into today's episode with Christy and Bryce. Christy and Bryce, you want to just give a little about your background and kind of what you're up to now? For sure. Uh, so we're currently talking to you from Barcelona. Um, it's really nice weather here. We're in an Airbnb near the beach and we have been traveling for the last four years. Um, so we retired at the ages of 31 and 32 from our um, computer engineering jobs and we've been tra traveling the world ever since. So how this whole thing started was initially I was kind of going down the status quo, um, you know, doing the usual buy the house, pay off the mortgage, work in a stressful job, wait until you're 65 before you can get a pension. Um, what I realized was that, uh, especially for our generation, the waiting for a pension part doesn't quite work so well anymore because jobs are not stable. And you don't even know if you're going to have a job in the next five years, never mind work for the next 30 years to be able to um, pay off your mortgage and have a pension. Uh, on top of that, because we lived in a major metropolitan city at the time we were living in Toronto and houses were over a million dollars for a single family home, it was very, very unaffordable. So this traditional path of just buy a house and then work until you're 65 and the company will take care of you. Um, that status quo path doesn't make sense anymore and doesn't work for us. 
So what we did was um, we decided to actually invest our money instead in low-cost index funds. And shockingly, as a result of that, not only did we not have to work until we're 65, we were able to retire in our 30s and actually live on less than how much we would have spent living in a high-cost city. And we've been traveling the world nonstop since. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot wow. of information all at once. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, that's great. So let, let's dive into this a little bit. When when you started this journey, was this something, I, you know, you said you'd kind of gone down the path to buy a house and everything else. At what point did that f- switch flip to then saying, hey, look, I'm going to try and invest everything I can to get to this point and then essentially retire to travel? Well, it was a gradual process. It was one of it was because I was just getting fed up of going to um, open houses and being told, like, really, you think you can afford this place? Come on, wait in line. Um, and then on top of that, my work was getting less secure because I was seeing a lot of outsourcing. I was watching my coworkers get laid off or work themselves until they stressed so much that uh, they almost had a heart attack and died. Um, so it, at that point I was like, this is not the way to go. I don't want to die at my desk. It doesn't make sense to follow this dream, um, of home ownership and, you know, working for one company. Uh, it's just not going to work out. So at that time I was still struggling with the idea of investing because, um, Bryce was thinking, you know, if we actually invest it, then the investments are actually going to pay us money. But if we put it into a house, we're going to be in a lot of debt. And coming from my background, so um, I was actually born in a rural village in China. And at one point, my family lived on 44 cents a day. So coming from that background to uh, trying to invest in the stock market, that was terrifying to me. Um, the idea that you could put in money, it could disappear the next day. I originally was not on board at all. Um, it actually took a lot of understanding how it works, studying, investing, learning about it, reading about it, um, and to finally get comfortable with it. And uh, to get to where we are today, to um, have gone through this journey in the last nine years uh, to become retired, has really been a mind, uh, mind shift, mindset shift to go from the scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset. And I think a lot of that is um, just fighting that misconception that investing is dangerous and it's like gambling, you're going to lose all your money. It's understanding how asset allocation works. It's understanding that putting money into your low cost index funds is not um, dangerous. And it's actually safer than leaving your money in a savings account in which all your money is going to be eroded by inflation. So you're getting paid less than 2%. And it's a, and it's much, much safer than like, you know, getting into a massive amount of debt and then just piling money into your house. Because guess what? You know, even if you pay off the house, it doesn't like that house doesn't actually help you retire because you can only like access that money if you sell it. So if you so it's investing, you like using um again, like she said, low cost ETFs is actually a lot safer than people think it is. And that's kind of what the message that we're trying to, to get out there. Totally. We're going to get into that in just a bit here. But what's your net worth today? When we retired, we have we retired with a million dollars uh, back in 2015. Uh, today it's at, I just counted up, it's like 1.3, almost 1.0, growing faster than we can spend it. So we've been getting paid to travel the world, essentially. Thanks, mm-hmm. portfolio. Yeah. And how is, <laughs> how is it, how is it broken up? Do you have some in retirement accounts and some that's not? And is it all yep. in index funds or how's kind of the allocation broken up? Sure. I mean, like, uh, so I go into a bit, a bit more detail of this in our book, Quit Like a Millionaire, but it's basically right now percent equity, 40% fixed income portfolio. And there's, uh, you know, um, uh, 
So when we were working, it was a bit more aggressive. But once we retired, we kind of took on more conservative allocation. But as our portfolio is growing, 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 it's actually making more sense to pivot back into a more aggressive equity allocation. And we're, we were literally just kind of figuring out what we're going to do at the end of the year to do that. So it's, it's actually like, so yeah, that's the short answer of it. So you guys are traveling full time now, right? Mm-hmm. And- yeah. We don't have a, yeah, we don't have a home base. Uh, all of the stuff that we own is just on two backpacks. Uh, that we carry around with us all over the world. After this, we're going to go to Sweden. And then after that, we might head off to Asia. I don't, we haven't actually decided yet. Wow. And how often, how long, uh, do you stay in one place or how often do you move around? Initially, we were moving around a lot. We were moving around every two to three days. We wouldn't stay in a place for longer than a week. Uh, now that we've actually traveled, uh, quite extensively, now we've slowed down and we're doing more of a slow travel. So we stay in a place generally from anywhere from a week to a month. Um, so currently we're staying in Barcelona for a week. After that, we'll be staying in Stockholm for a week and then um, likely flying to Thailand and staying in Chiang Mai for a month. So it kind of varies wow. as we go. Um, but I think the key takeaway for travel is that it's less expensive than actually living in North America. Yeah, that's, that, that's really uh, I mean, like you live in New York. So, I, you know, you probably think that everything is ridiculously expensive. But uh, what, but what, you, what we actually found out was that when you go to a place like, well, first of all, New York is just one of the most expensive cities in the world. If you just right. throw, if you just throw a rock at the globe, you'll probably hit a place that's cheaper. So when we were when we were traveling around like Europe, we were you know, and we were in the UK. Yeah, it was expensive, but then we went to places like Portugal, Poland, Eastern Europe, even Spain is actually not as expensive as people think it is. Um, and then we went to, and, and then when we flew to Southeast Asia, and we started going to like Vietnam and uh, Thailand and those kinds of places. Uh, our cost of living dropped by like half. So we were, so we were like sitting on a beach and then we were, uh, you know, drinking margaritas and, and like over, if we stayed there for the year, it would cost us no more than like twenty twenty five thousand dollars a year. Right. So when you do that, what we realize is that when you combine this, um, financial independence, retire early stuff with, uh, nomadic travel, uh, it becomes a superpower because you can very precisely control how, how big your uh, your spending is simply by how you allocate your time in what in the in each location. So if you find all of a sudden your budget just fixes itself. Yeah. So to give <laughs> right. you an example, one of the things that people don't realize is that when you are uh, when you have a balanced portfolio, it's also paying off dividends. So you don't even have to sell anything. You can the capital value can move up and down. It doesn't really matter. Um, if you're sitting on a beach in Thailand and you're only spending twenty five thousand dollars US, which is what we were spending in February, uh, you are getting paid. Um, because your your if your dividends are thirty five thousand dollars a year on a million dollar portfolio, you're getting t- paid ten thousand dollars to sit on a beach, regardless of what the stock market is doing. And so this nomadic lifestyle is actually a very powerful tool in terms of helping you live a better life and not have to worry about the um, the stock market and losing money. Yeah. So where do you guys stay? Is it Airbnbs or home exchanges or what do you do? Uh, we do a mixture of hotels and Airbnbs. We've stayed in hotels in Southeast Asia before. Um, and currently we're staying in Airbnbs because that helps us, um, allow us to actually do some cooking as well as do laundry. Sure. And then how do you fill your time during the day? I know, I know you got this millennial revolution blog and obviously you've written the book and, and what else? Are you guys historical people? You like to go around and see sites or is there something else you kind of have on the side to help fill some time? Yeah. yeah. We've actually been meeting up with friends all over the world. Um, some of them are from the uh, traveling community and some of them are from the fire community. Um, so I like to think of travel now as kind of like one, like you're, you're in one city 
and the world is one city and there's meeting different communities all over the world. Um, so recently we were hanging out with friends in Barcelona. Um, sometimes we go out to do some sightseeing. Sometimes we do some reading. Sometimes we do some writing, uh, answer reader comments, things like that. So the day just changes um, depending on what we feel like. I think that's the best part of uh, nomadic travel is that you can decide your day is never going to be exactly the same from the day. Before. Right. Right. And how many countries have you guys been to? Uh, so by now we have been to um, 40 countries. Wow. I think it's a little bit more now. Yeah. We keep adding to that list. We keep adding to that list. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I know you said you retired at, at 31. How, how long ago was that? Or how many years have you been traveling? Yeah. So uh, I became financially independent at the age of 31. And then um, after that, we left in 2015 in June. And uh, yeah, we, so we've been traveling ever since June 2015. Wow. Wow. What an amazing story. So you obviously worked hard or had higher paying jobs, right? To be able to say, to be able to save up a million dollars at the age of 31, right? Were you guys, were you guys pretty frugal? Did you have good jobs? Did you work really hard for side gigs? How did that kind of happen? Yeah, we had decent uh, jobs. So we were both computer engineers. So we started off after uh, college earning $62,000 combined because we only worked that half the year. And eventually that salary grew to um, be around 140000 after tax. Um, so, so that's combined. combined. So that's with the two yeah. of us. Yeah. So I would just not inflating our life costs. Like every time we got a promotion, everybody else would go out and they would buy a car or maybe they would upgrade their house or maybe they would go out to eat a lot more. We just kind of kept the same consistent standard of living. Um, we, we never, we were never willing to cut so that it would be painful. Like we never cut out any vacation costs. We'd go on vacation and spend at least 5,000 to 10,000 a year, but it really is about not inflating your life when you actually get a promotion. And avoiding debt like the plague. Like what we did, like oh, our, what's remarkable about our journey is that we didn't really do anything amazing to get here. We didn't like start a side hustle. We didn't start Snapchat or we didn't like buy Amazon when it was $10. We just avoided the landmines. Like we, we, we avoided debt like the plague. We didn't take on, we, we picked strategically our careers so that we wouldn't have to take on any student debt or, um, and the, and, and grad, and we were able to graduate into a job market in which it was, you know, hot and we were able to get full-time jobs immediately. But, right. and then we, avoid, and then we, we avoided buying an overpriced house that which ever, literally everybody around us was encouraging mm-hmm. us to. So it wasn't doing anything extraordinary. It was just, not making the mistakes that everyone else is making. Sure. How did you guys meet? Uh, we met in engineering school in a lab. Yeah, we were it was lab. extremely ner- nerdy. Yeah, we were lab partners. And and did you both? And then how did you make that connection that you were kind of both interested in, in personal finance, or did that happen later down the road? That oh, happened. No, that, yeah, yeah we, that, we did not connect on personal finance at all. Yeah, we were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She is the one that you know is, does all the shopping. Like she's the one that has this encyclopedic knowledge of like how much stuff is supposed to cost. I don't. But that's because of the background that she had where, you know, she grew up like, you know, really just dirt poor. But we eventually but we eventually came to this whole personal finance stuff because Christy didn't like her job. She always hated computer engineering. Well, not hated, but she always wanted to be a writer. Right. So it's like this is the so she treated the job as just like something you do for money. But her actual dream was to become a writer. And uh, I knew that she would never be happy in that, like doing engineering full time for the next 34 years. Uh, so I was always trying to look for a way out and I was trying to like look up all this like side hustle stuff. And I was trying to, I was trying to start this next Snapchat on my spare time so that we wouldn't have to work anymore. And as it turns out, and, and all those things failed, right? 
but then I stumbled up, but, uh, but at the time, because we weren't like, we were avoiding the, the debt, the, our savings kept, our down payment fund kept growing and growing and growing and growing until eventually at around 2012, I, I, we crossed like half a million dollars. And I'm like, huh, this is a lot of money. I wonder what, what else we could do with this. And then that's how I started learning about all this investing stuff. And I went, oh, maybe I don't have to start the next Snapchat. Maybe I can just do this instead. And that's kind of where, um, that's kind of how we came to this uh, personal finance stuff. Yeah. So one of the things I write about in the book is strategically to figure out what's the correct career. Because had I gone into writing, um, there's no way I would have become financially independent. But then because we actually became financially independent, learned how to invest and figured out the um, career strategically, I was able to have both. So I was able to have money and be an artist at the same time. Yeah, totally agree with you. I think it's a, it's a vital part, especially if you want to, if you want to be financially independent and retire early, right? You have to have a career that, 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 that pays you or somehow gets you money that you can either invest or start something on the side or something that gives you, gives you that income. So just playing devil's advocate a little bit here, a, a couple of thoughts. Is this something you guys intend to keep doing for the next 20, 30, 40 years or are you going to settle down or what if kids come into the picture? Is this something that could be done with kids? Yeah. Um, so one of the beauties of, uh, one of the amazing things of traveling is that you get to meet communities that you would have never met if you stayed in your home city. Um, so one of the, uh, communities that we came across while traveling is called the world schooling community. I didn't even know this was a thing. Um, but there's, uh, over 40,000 people in this community on Facebook. And what they do is they travel the world with their kids and they use the world as a classroom. So, um, some of them do homeschooling, some of them do unschooling, and some of them do, a, um, combination of correspondence schools and international schools. So if we were ever to have kids, we would learn from this community and um, find a way for them to learn multiple languages while traveling and um, get their schooling while on the road. Yeah. And then do you, do you think you'll settle down in one place eventually or maybe stay at, at places longer or... Yeah, I don't have any intentions of settling down. I think uh, we might do something like maybe split our time across four different uh, places across the world, maybe like three months each um, split between North America, Europe, Southeast Asia, and maybe South America, something like that. But I don't see us settling down for a long time. Not, not settle down like permanently in one place for like a year. Just some like we will slow down probably at some point. Uh, but I don't think we'll ever just like, okay, now we're going to buy a house and just, just stay here for 10 years. Be, there's, yeah, lot, yeah. there's lots of different styles of travelers out there. And some of the really interesting ones are like, you know, people like I know this person who bought a houseboat and just sails around all over the, all over the world. And there's some people that, you know, have a home base that they rent out and then go travel like that way. There's different styles of travel, but I don't think we'll ever go back to traditionally just, you know, uh, sedentary and staying in one place. The world is too awesome to do that. Yeah. So, and you said you guys are spending about twenty five, thirty thousand a year. We're spending forty thousand a oh, year. 40. The reason for uh, the twenty five thousand I mentioned is that um, so you can actually go to expensive places like UK or we were in Dublin um, a couple weeks ago. If you split that uh, cost between inexpensive places like um, Thailand or Poland or Portugal, so you can if you spend twenty five thousand dollars for half the year in Thailand, but then the other half of the year you go to more expensive places, then which is how much we spend per year. Right. So the twenty twenty five thousand dollar number was what you would spend per year if you stayed the entire year in one of the lower cost countries. So we're not actually doing that, but that's something that, that's something that's always in the back of your pocket. Okay. So you're you're about okay, gotcha. And then what about if there's a big market correction? Do you guys worry about that at all? Do you how much how do you know how much to pull out of the market at any given time? Or you kind of just say, hey, I'm in for the long haul. And I'm if, if, when there's a market correction, there'll be a market correction. And we're just going to keep going with it and, and absorb it as we go. 
Oh yeah. So this is something uh, that we write in the book, and the, the details of it are a little, um, you know, um, esoteric and might need charts to show. So I'm just going to introduce it. It's called the yield shield. So what we did was when we, um, when we after we retired, we pivoted the portfolio to higher yielding assets like preferred shares, REITs, uh, dividend paying stocks, and this kind of stuff. That these kinds of assets that pay you a dividend or fixed income, whether regardless of what the market does. So that's the amount that you actually live off of. You don't actually, it's possible to simply live off of that. If you can live off of that, then that means that you never have to sell anything every year in order to raise money to, uh, to, for your uh, retirement budget. So, and, and that's what we're doing. So we're using a combination of the yield off of our portfolio and geographic arbitrage to always make sure that we can live off of either completely the yield or mostly the yield so that you don't care about market corrections anymore. So if the market crashes, uh, your portfolio might be worth less, but it's still paying, you know, like 30, 30 35 or $40,000. And then you just don't care. Yeah. So having been in engineering, one of the things we like to do is have multiple backup plans. So this strategy allows us to have three different multiple backup plans. So the first one is um, if you are living off the yield, you don't actually have to sell anything. So it doesn't matter what the capital value is. It doesn't matter what, if the stock markets are um, in a, a downfall. And the second one is cash cushion. So in addition to what uh, Bryce mentioned, we also have um, cash cushion of approximately three to five years of living expenses because the first five years of retirement is when you need to worry about sequence of return risk, which is what happens if you continuously um, have to sell and you are in a down market for the first five years. So that'll deplete your portfolio too quickly. But we have cash cushion on top of the yield shield to deal with that. On top of that, there's also geographic arbitrage. Because you're not tied to an expensive city for your job, you can actually move around to decrease your cost. So a lot of people, you know, the devil's advocate is saying like, oh, but you know, you can't decrease your cost. You're, you, you have a house and you have to pay a mortgage and, you know, things are expensive and there's inflation. Yeah, but if you're nomadic, you can move where you want. I could move to um, Thailand within the next month if I wanted to. I could move to Poland and then drop my costs. So with these three um, backup plans in place, we don't have to worry about what happens in the stock market and it helps us sleep at night. Yeah, it's pretty wild that the lifestyle that you've designed. Has there been a favorite place that you've traveled to or a favorite destination that, that you've lived in for a long period of time? We actually stumbled into this a little bit. It wasn't like we were sitting back home and saying like, I'm going to design this lifestyle. It was literally kind of um, okay, we can quit now. Um, and for, you know, I had to stay in my job a little bit longer because my boss was going on paternity. So we saved up uh, like a little bit of like fun money and we were just kind of like, let's travel around the world for a year. Cause I never got to, do, we never got to do that. We, when we graduated, um, we, we went right to work. We never got to do that backpacking across Europe millennial thing that everyone else gets to do. So we did that. We did that for a year, but we, re and then after the year was over, we realized, Hey, we only actually spent about as much as our budget was for retiring. And that's how we discovered that this is, was possible. So again, it wasn't some Machiavellian thing that we designed. We just kind of stumbled into it. And then now that we realized that this is possible, now we're telling everyone, this is awesome. This is awesome. Come with us. Come with us. But yeah, in terms of favorite places, there's favorite places all over the world. I love uh, like like Europe. I love Portugal. Uh, and as I mentioned before, Poland and Eastern Europe. Uh, Southeast Asia is awesome because, you know, I grew up in Canada. So I never want to see another snowflake ever again in the rest of my life. And that, so that's how I do it. Um, <laughs> when, when it gets to winter, I go to, I'm, I'm, I'm off to Thailand. Uh, Central America, I've been really interested to explore more. South America, I haven't been to. Uh, at all yet, except We've for Ecuador. Been We've been to Ecuador. We've been to Ecuador, but I've never, uh, we haven't done like Machu Picchu and like that kind of stuff. So that's kind of on our list, but we haven't uh, figured out when we're going to do that yet. How about you? What are your favorite places? I would say the most surprising place is Poland. 
it's one of these places that, you know, people don't really think about when they go on vacation. So you can actually avoid the massive uh, crowds of tourists um, like the rest of Europe. And uh, the cost of living is actually on par with Malaysia, surprisingly, because their currency, the Zvoti, is actually um, uh, basically at the same rate as the Malaysian ringgit. Uh, so when we actually were there, we realized it was one of the least expensive places, but with high Western, you know, like uh, with really high quality of living um, that we could actually live live there and uh, be very comfortable. That's interesting. Have you been to East Europe yet? Just just out of curiosity, Clark and I both lived in Bulgaria for a little bit. So have you been over there oh, yeah. at all? Yeah. So we went to uh, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's that We haven't been to Bulgaria yet. Yeah, it's it's pretty inexpensive, and you can kind of live like a king for. for oh yeah, yeah. So there. you get, so you get it. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 We, Europeans have a lot of options for this kind of stuff because they can just like if you're an EU citizen, you can just move anywhere. So some people can, some people didn't realize that if they just like work in Switzerland for like a few years and then retire in Latvia, they're just like done. Yeah. So it's like it's it's really powerful. It's a really powerful tool once you know how to use it properly. Totally. So is it is it possible to replicate what y'all have done and and leave at a million or does it need to be a little bit more based on today's dollars and and the economy? Well, uh, how so a million is a nice round number, but it's, uh, but it's just kind of it's just made up. Um, the how you actually calculate how much you need is you take your current living expenses and then you multiply it by twenty five. So if you are living off of $30,000 a year, then that means you can retire with a $750,000 portfolio. If you are living off of $40,000, which is what we were, uh, then you need a million. So it really depends on how much your spending is. And more importantly, it depends on how much your spending would be after retirement. So I know, uh, Clark, you live in like New York. So the people in New York that are doing this, they have, and they have two FI numbers. They have like a Long Island FI number and then they have an everywhere else in the US FI number, <laughs> right? So it's like, how much do I have? It's like, cause you guys, cause your budgets are insane. Like, like when people write into us from New York or LA, I take a look at their spending and I barf. Cause I'm just like, I like, it's like, oh my God, you're spending so much money. Right. But you guys, but you, you know, you know, you just because you live and work in New York doesn't mean you have to retire there. That, sure. We sure. know people who went to like Oregon or uh, Richmond, Virginia or North Carolina, uh, one of the Carolinas. And then because, the, because the cost of everything just drops precipitously. So they work in one place and retire in another. And the place that where you retire to, that's the, place that you need to calculate your FI number from. So the, it's just called a 4% rule or the rule of 25. And it's based off of all the statistical analysis of, you know, if you have a portfolio X that, that is X dollars, how much as a percentage can you pull out every year and not deplete it statistically? Yeah, I agree with you. The 4% rule, right? But it also, I think, depends too on, on how often you want to travel, how you want to live when you travel, right? Or, or maybe some of the other things um, you want to do. But I think it's hard, right, Bryce? Isn't it kind of hard for people to know that haven't ever taken a year or two off or, or whatever, right, to know exactly what they're going to spend in retirement? Well, uh, I like to tell people who are, you know, close to their FI number or they're, you know, um, they're thinking about what to do is I, I, I like to give them homework of take strategic vacations. Like the next couple of years, take a vacation in like a place that you might want to travel to. And but don't live like a vacationer. Don't just go into like a Marriott and then just like stay there. Find a homestay, find an Airbnb, find an apartment that you can just rent out for like a month and then just like live there and then it costs. So that kind of gives you 
um, an idea of, you know, would you be okay with living in Madrid or Barcelona? Uh, would that, how much does that cost? So I just tell people to just, you know, try it out, try it out, right? Because that's the only way that you'll really know whether that kind of lifestyle is good for you. So, and, and you can even do this inside the US, right? You don't need to, like, you can spend, a, you know, you can go to, you know, Richmond, Virginia and just, you know, rent an apartment and see whether you like it. I just want to add that um, there's a lot of fear for when people want to talk about financial independence, about running out of money. But the thing that they should also worry about is running out of life. Because um, I have actually seen my coworker almost collapse from stress and die at his desk. So, you know, you could always be like, there's a million things that could go wrong. What if I, what if I need to budget for every single scenario that on, under the sun that could go wrong? Uh, or you could um, be more flexible. Think about how much you actually need to live com- comfortably. And you could even pick up a side hustle or two. And that significantly reduces the amount of money you, you need to retire. So, for example, if you just make $5,000 in retirement, um, all of a sudden you're at or like $10,000 in retirement, all of a sudden you're adding uh, $250,000 in the portfolio that you don't need to put in. Because now by the 4% rule, that $10,000 is covered by the side hustle. So, Christy, just I want to dive into your mindset a little bit. And, and Bryce, obviously, you can jump in here, too, about kind of this growing up on 44 cents a day to now being you know, worth one and a half million and traveling the world. How did how did you get to that mindset? How did how did that shift happen in your life? Because that is pretty drastic, right? Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons um, comes from my culture. It's the concept of chirku. So that actually means eat bitterness. Um, so it, it literally means pushing through obstacles and seeing it as a benefit rather than a hindrance. Uh, so instead of, I, I don't really see poverty as something that actually held me back. I think it's one of the reasons why I actually got here. Uh, because having lived in China, um, when I didn't have, you know, I wasn't able to take hot showers. We didn't have toilets. We barely had running water. Um, I at one point had stomach worms. So when you actually immigrate to the West, you start to see that there's so much abundance that people take for granted. And I think that gave me the perspective that um, it's really it wasn't really that bad, like knowing that it could be so much worse in other countries and knowing that I've lived through so much worse. And that was the skill that helped me appreciate money and value it to the extent that I that I did that we were able to become millionaires in our 30s and make strategic money decisions about my career. Um, that's that's how I think I got here. So one of the mindset uh, lessons that I learned is turning a negative into a positive. Instead of seeing it as something that's detrimental to your life, use it. Use the obstacle as the method to get to where you are today. Yeah, terrific advice and, and an amazing story. How did you? You know, you talk about not worrying so much, right, that you that investments may go down or just kind of taking a leap and and you can think of all the things that go wrong. Right. How did you kind of get over that? Right. I think it's easier said than done to say, hey, I have a million dollars. We're cutting off both of our jobs and now we're going to go travel the world. How did to either of you, how did you kind of get over that and, and, and actually jump in and make the move? Well, I mean, like for us, we're um, we're both engineers. So we have this mindset of. You know, things can like figure out like a bridge will only like stand like when you do an analysis and you're building a bridge, you kind of kind of say, okay, what are every single thing that go wrong? There's a backup plan or there's like, a okay, here's how you solve that. Once you like enumerate all the things that go wrong and then you place backup plans or safety measures that cover all of it, that's how you know that the system is stable. So that's kind of how we were brought up and taught how to like solve problems. And we just kind of apply that to the financial part of it as well. Cause yeah, you know what? A lot of people in this FI space are very optimistic people. Um, they will just kind of go, I hit my number, bye. And then, and then just, and, and then that's just kind of the extent of the preparation that they do. 
Um, we are probably one of the most pessimistic conservative people that have, uh, that are in this space. And that's kind of why we built all these like backup plans. Like, okay, what if there's a market downturn? How do we like, uh, how do we avoid selling anything? How do we, and then that's how we built up all these like backup plans that we, um, that we write about in the book. And that's how we know that the system is safe. So we kind of applied our engineering kind of minds to this whole retirement thing. And then when we were, when we convinced ourselves that we've covered all of our bases and all of our, you know, T's are, are crossed and our I's dotted. That's how we kind of get the confidence to it. I do agree that it is easier said than done. And despite all the math, despite all the engineering, uh, the day that I quit my job uh, was actually quite interesting because I thought I would be, you know, jumping and doing jumping jacks out of the office, but I was actually terrified. Um, and after I actually gave my notice, I had a, a, a mini panic attack um, that night thinking, oh, my God, what did I do? Uh, because you have this identity for the last 10 years and it's so ingrained in you. You're indoctrinated to think I don't have an identity anymore. Like, how is it going to it's not even just about the money. What about my identity? Um, so what helped me was over time, I learned that we're so busy in society thinking about doing, doing, doing. And I've actually learned to just be like, just be happy get into nature, exercise, go travel, meet people, spend time with your family. Those are actually the most important things in life. Those are the things that you're going to be thinking about on your deathbed, not about how much more money I could have made or what about my ego and like climbing the corporate ladder. Um, so I think that I came to this conclusion over time, just being able to decompress, like not do anything for the six first six months, not think about work, not think about, you know, the next step, the next step. And I think that's absolutely crucial um, for, for readers to understand that when it comes to the end of your life, you're going to be thinking back about all the people that you've met, all the relationships that you've built. Those are the things that are, that are the most important, not about doing all the time. So, and I think a majority of the, the how I came to that conclusion was just taking the time off and having the space to really think about it. Yeah, it reminds me of that quote of, of when, you know, if somebody dies or is sitting on their deathbed, nobody's wishing they would have spent more time in the office. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, to have come to this place by making these decisions that when it comes time for us, like when it, when the end comes, we're not going to be thinking about, oh, I wish I could have had more time with my family. I wish I could have done something I wanted to do. I wish I could have been a writer. I wish I had traveled the world. I don't have any of those regrets. I don't have any of those fears anymore. And I think that's what life is really about. Yeah. What do you guys do for insurance? Oh, um, so you're talking about, uh, I guess health, health insurance. Yeah. 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 So, um, we are, so uh, when you travel outside of the U S you are, you can buy what's called an expat insurance. And these are insurance policies that are run by the same companies that you know and quote unquote love like Cigna, Aetna. The one that we're using is called I am global. But it's an insurance policy that covers you like it's, it's, it's meant for people who emigrate to a new country, but aren't covered by that new country's healthcare system. So they have to kind of like self, they have to privately self insure. Uh, and what we realized for that was that when you travel outside the US, the cost of like medical assistance is way, way, way lower than what it is inside the US. You, no one pays more for uh, medical insurance and Americans. So as long as you're outside the US, it's really not that expensive. I think the policy that we got was for the two of us and it was like a hundred US dollars a month and that covers the two of us, right? And it gives you coverage everywhere in the world except the US, you know? So it's like, it's actually really cheap outside the US. And then when we, and when we do need to come into the US, I have to buy a separate travel insurance policy for that, but I only do that for the specific amount of time I'm in the US. Those are expensive, but I, as long as you are outside the US for most of the year, it's not that expensive. 
Okay, gotcha. That's really interesting. So what part does, when you guys are traveling here and, and, and moving around, what part does charitable giving give in all this? Do you guys do service projects? Do you help out? How do you know who to give to if you do? What's kind of your take there? Yeah, so uh, we volunteer for a nonprofit called We Need Diverse Books. Um, so this actually came about while we were working. Um, so I was trying to be an author on the side, and I met a bunch of um, other writers who are advocates for uh, diversity in children's literature. So the first six months while we were relaxing, we spent um, time volunteering and building an app for this nonprofit. So that's kind of like our mission to um, diversify children's literature. And uh, that's another beautiful thing about becoming financial independent because you actually have enough. Uh, you know, nor- normally you would be struggling to pay your bills and then you really can only think about doing things for money. But then after you retire and you have enough, you can think about giving back. You can think about giving back your, not just money. If you want to give back your time, that's also equally valid. So we've done donations to WNDB and we've been uh, spending time helping them from a technology point of view. Awesome. Good, good for you guys. We usually go through these rapid fire questions, but I think we've hit on uh, most of them. What's been just out of curiosity, the most expensive country or place that you guys have traveled to and what's been the cheapest? When, when Iceland is up there, but the funny thing is whenever everyone asks us, oh, what's your favorite place where, uh, and then this is like many different answers, but if, if anyone asks us what's our least favorite place, it's like LA, like immediately. And cause it's just like, it is the exact opposite of everything that is like the FI kind of mindset. Right. So it's, it's like, a, it's a city full of conspicuous consumption that everyone's just like out competing how much money to spend on each other. It's, it's really, really, when I, but I have a cousin and I, and I love going there to see her, but the, the, the city itself is, you have to drive everywhere. The traffic is horrible. That, yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah. So I say most expensive, probably between Iceland, LA, UK is also very, oh, Scandinavia. Yeah. Iceland. Denmark is really expensive. We're going to go to Stockholm soon. So we'll tell you about how expensive that is. Once yeah. We yeah. Out. Northern Europe, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And then least expensive, I would say, uh, definitely Thailand, Cambodia and, uh, Vietnam are, Probably the most, the least expensive. Oh yeah, Cambodia. You get like a you can get like a pint of beer for fifty U.S. cents. It's great. <laughs> so tell us a little about your book. A uh, recent book came out, "Quit Like a Millionaire." Tell us a little bit about that. Maybe what people can expect, um, and maybe what's new in that, right? For people that are reading the blog or, or consistent readers of the blog, what's kind of different? What are they getting out of the book? For sure. Okay. Uh, so "Quit Like a Millionaire" follows my journey from. Uh, growing up on 44 cents to becoming a millionaire. So we deliberately wrote it with uh, the idea that it would be for a finance book for people who don't normally read finance books. And um, so coming from our background of writing in children's literature, we decided to weave a story narrative so that you can learn about investing, you can learn about um, tax optimization strategies, you can learn about geographic arbitrage all throughout uh, a very like a narrative um, storytelling perspective so that it won't be boring and it's easy to understand. Um, I would say what makes it stand out is that uh, a lot of finance books come from the angle of, oh, I, you know, I, I had a great job, but then like, what, like, what did I, what, what more do I do with myself? This book is about overcoming adversity because that's the thing that fascinates me. Having grown up in that, with that kind of background, I'm always fascinated by people who have to push through the obstacle and then use that as what makes them stronger. So I would advise you to, to read the book if you're interested in how to overcome struggles, because um, it's not, it has not been an easy journey, but I don't regret it for a second. Awesome. Obviously a fantastic journey. Bryce, any, any take on, on the book for you or any last words of advice for maybe somebody who wants to do something similar to what you guys are doing? Yeah, it's just we wrote it. We wrote the book such that it's like this is your one-stop shop of everything that you need to that you need to do. 
And um, and if you want to, and a lot of people want to like, um, you know, gift it and like, you know, because they read this stuff and they want to gift it to their kids, gift it to their spouse. It's really handy for that too, because you can't really do that with a, uh, the book that we've done. And I'm quite surprised and humbled by the uh, positive response that we've gotten from this thing. Yeah, good for you guys. Good for you. Congrats again on, on your story and your success. Again, that's Christian Bryce, authors of the recent book, Quit Like a Millionaire, No Gimmicks, Luck, or Trust Fund Retired. And also they blog at millennialrevolution.com. Thank you guys. Again, net worth of $1 million when you retired up to about one and a half now. Thanks for taking the time and coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.